I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War, and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 6. The British political system had yet to fully settle down by the time Lord Derby took office in spring 1858. Their predecessor to the Conservative Party, the Tory Party, had endured major setbacks over the previous years, first and foremost of which was the disintegration of their party over the issue of the Corn Laws, which as we saw last time created Peelites, who left the Tory orbit, and anti-Peelites, who stayed behind. The flight of the Peelites into the camp of the Whigs, the more liberal and reform-minded opponents of the Tories in politics, upset the political balance of power in Parliament and in the House of Lords, but at this point the impact of the Peelite split was hard to quantify. Although the Peelites frequently sided with the Whigs in Parliament and many Whigs and Peelites professed similar political views, the agreement was not set in stone. Some Peelites professed a desire to return to the Tories once the latter had reformed their policies and accepted the notions of free trade that Peelites held so dear. Still more incumbent Tories declared their desire to see the party reunified once again, owing to the fact that Sir Robert Peel's death meant that a new avenue of discussion could be opened. Despite the death of Sir Robert Peel in 1850 though, his political legacy lived on to haunt the Tories. Both sides remained unwilling to discuss the possibilities of reunification since neither was willing to give ground on the major reasons they had originally left the party in the first place. 
In spite of this point, the frequency of new governments in the late 1840s and 50s more often than not began with attempts by both sides to poach either Peelite or Tory MPs from the other side, with the hope that the lure of office would be too much for some to resist, though this rarely bore fruit. The new Tory government under Lord Derby was a shaky one. It did not enjoy a majority and meant that the Prime Minister would have to rely all too often on persuasion and the full support of his party to pass any bills, while his Tory leader of the House of Commons, Benjamin Disraeli, continued to polarise opinion and push the Peelites further away with his convictions. Disraeli understood that the continuation of Derby's ministry depended upon the divisions among the Whigs and Peelites, who would not always unite against him in the House of Commons. Though he was returned as Chancellor of the Exchequer, Disraeli mostly continued the acts that Gladstone had pushed through, including the latter's tax reforms. At this point, the Whigs and Peelites remained somewhat unable to close ranks conclusively enough to simply merge. Their leaders, in John Russell and Lord Palmerston respectively, had disagreed with one another in heated public discussions over issues such as the Conspiracy to Commit Murder Bill, which back in early 1858 had actually caused Palmerston's defeat and resignation amidst a bitter Whig reception. Palmerston blamed the Whigs and Peelites alike for not siding with them more forcefully, while John Russell lamented Palmerston's overblown French sympathies that had needlessly cost them both the ministry. A bridge was inadvertently constructed by the Tories that would enable both sides to be reconciled, though. A reform bill which would achieve limited enfranchisement and would increase the gains made in the 1832 bill was just that bridge. This bill, which both Peelites and Whigs opposed on the grounds that it did not go far enough, soon came to be seen as a boon to their collective political fortunes. It enabled both groups to present the bill as having not gone far enough, and a typical example of the Tory conservatism which was stagnating the country. Lord Derby's government attempted to get the bill passed, but when this vote was defeated in early 1859, Lord Derby resigned. And back we go again to political turmoil. In April 1859, Lord Palmerston once again became Prime Minister, with Gladstone once again as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but this new government was not simply a rehashing of previous Whig Peelite ministries. With the Whigs and Peelites now even closer than before, the worst nightmares of the Tories were about to be realised, as their former colleagues and political rivals merged to form the Liberal Party in June 1859. Adopting as formal the moniker of Liberal Party, which had been frequently used to describe the loose coalition of Peelites, Whigs, Irish MPs and Radicals, these groupings made British political history. William Gladstone, alongside veteran Whig statesman John Russell, had together agreed to serve under Palmerston, and thus it looked for the first time in a while that political stability would return in Britain. Henceforth, we will be reflecting this turn in politics by referring to the Whig Peelite Alliance as simply Liberals and the Tories as simply Conservatives, unless further details prove necessary. Hopefully this streamlining of terms will make everything a little more palatable for you guys. And me. This streamlining of British politics was of little consolation to Benjamin Disraeli though, who once again had seen his dreams of office ruined by Gladstone, and once again, Gladstone had taken his position of Chancellor of the Exchequer away from him. Gladstone was to endure his own problems, though. 
Despite the fact that he remained a critical pillar and go-between for the various groupings in the New Liberal Party and an enthusiastic supporter of its creation, Palmerston increasingly began to see him as something of a loose cannon. Jasper Ridley, in his biography of Lord Palmerston in 1970, noted that Palmerston and Gladstone disagreed on a range of issues that went from foreign policy to the disestablishment of the church to electoral reform. This latter point, electoral reform, is worth looking at because Lord Palmerston was one of the last few landed gentry of the old-style left in liberal circles by 1859. The other major relic was John Russell, occasional leader of the Whigs and former Prime Minister. The two terrible old men, as they were nicknamed, weren't necessarily terrible, but they were part of a society which was increasingly having to face the issue of its own mortality. Men like Gladstone were from wealth, as were men like Disraeli, though to a lesser extent. However, with the advent of so many reform bills, it was surely only a matter of time before the old gentry were left behind in the dust of the newly enfranchised classes. Unless, of course, they did something about it. Time would tell if the Liberal Party could contain the members of the party who, while meaning well and desirous of genuine reform, did not want this reform to come at the expense of their own influence, or that of the families they represented, which had held such influential positions for centuries. The political mazes of the 19th century are so convoluted and complicated because so many crises and ideals were bubbling to the British political surface like never before, and at the same time. These ideals may have swayed a significant number of politicians, but they never swayed people enough to enjoy total overall support within a party. Therefore, we are left instead with parties splitting into halves, thirds and quarters as the various ideological differences of once-united groupings were ironed out. This process would never truly complete itself, and is simply an unfortunate side effect of the differences in political opinion. Unfortunately, while they undergo their splits and divisions within those splits and classifications within those divisions and differences of opinion within those classifications, no thought is given to the humble political historian tasked with accounting for it all and making it digestible. You may have noticed. Lord Palmerston, despite his misgivings about Gladstone, recognised his talents and thus ensured he remained leader of the Liberals in the House of Commons. Since this episode is being used primarily to introduce Gladstone and Disraeli's careers, we should not dwell on those that came before them in politics to too great an extent. Though at the same time, it is worth noting the wealth and depth of the personalities that the British political scene enjoyed at this time. A great example being Palmerston himself. A writer for The Times would note retrospectively upon Lord Palmerston's death in October 1865 that, quote, his government carried us through the danger of the Italian War, united us through the Treaty of Commerce in closer relations with France, carried out reforms in India that led to its comparative prosperity, remodelled our bankruptcy law and our education system, and steered through the difficulties raised by the American War, the Danish Crisis and the Polish Rebellions. Amidst these and other perplexities, which are so recent they will be in everyone's recollection, it was constantly apparent that nothing but the personal popularity of Lord Palmerston saved the government from going to wreck in the House of Commons. While he sat on the Treasury bench, everything went smoothly. Whenever an attack of gout compelled him for an instance to leave the guidance of the House of Commons, even to such an accomplished orator as Mr. Gladstone, defeat and disaster were the consequence. End quote. 
Though the Times could never be accused of total objectivity when the issue of politics was raised, its summary of events here reflects the very crowded schedule that Palmerston's government endured. As Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gladstone had his work cut out for him too. Not only did he establish a new tax bracket, with his old limit of £100 now serving as a convenient marker to differentiate different levels of tax, but he also sought new ways to apply the liberal free trade principles upon which the entire nucleus of the party was based. He found a new outlet for this in France. In November 1859, Richard Cobden, liberal MP and pioneering statesman of extraordinary calibre, whom Gladstone and many other liberals like him drew much inspiration from, made the decision to travel to France after Cobden's friend and fellow liberal pioneer John Bright had written a thesis questioning why Britain and France continued to be at loggerheads when organising a free trade agreement would have saved them such a great deal of effort and made them a great deal of money. Anglo-French antagonisms were by no means reaching a fever pitch by 1859 or 60, but they had certainly cooled notably once the Crimean War had ended, and the British press and politicians alike regularly came under the influence of the latest scares and so-called secret reports from the continent, which declared that France determined to invade Britain, and Napoleon III determined to avenge himself on the nation that had defeated his uncle. Initially, Richard Cobden acted much on his own volition when he went to France, but he certainly let Palmerston and Gladstone know where he was going and why, and Gladstone was very much in favour of what Cobden was doing. The conversations Cobden had with the French Emperor and his ministers were critically important for the sake of the later Cobden-Chevalier Treaty, named after Cobden and the serving French Foreign Minister of the time, Michel Chevalier, which established free trade between Britain and France, and must stand as Cobden's greatest diplomatic achievement. It took him a whole year to accomplish the task of first persuading Napoleon III, then his ministers, and then riding out the inevitable waves of opposition from the Francophobes at home in Britain and protectionists in France. Cobden did not return triumphant until November 1860, but by February of 1860, when Gladstone presented his budget, he was already able to reveal the news of the ongoing deal. Gladstone had emphasised to Cobden that, while the treaty was important economically, The great aim is to realise the moral and political significance of the Act, and its probable and desired fruit in binding the two countries together by interest and affection. Neither you nor I attach for the moment any superlative value to this treaty for the sake of the extension of British trade. What I look to is the social good, the benefit to the relations of the two countries, and the effect on the peace of Europe. Gladstone didn't just want economic returns, he wanted the treaty to serve as a stepping stone towards better relations, and the beginning of a new, better friendship between Britain and France. Considering the chaotic nature of the 1860s, it was certainly fortunate that Cobden's negotiations paid off as they did. Although Gladstone was certainly concerned with maintaining peace, diplomacy was not his responsibility as the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He set about trying to balance the books and find a happy medium between direct and indirect taxation. Almost immediately he ran into problems when he tried to abolish the large duties on paper. Although relatively cheap to manufacture, taxes on paper had remained high mostly out of the aristocratic fear that cheaper paper would encourage the creation of more radical pamphlets and newspapers from the poorer rungs of society, and that the aristocratic monopoly on the British mind would come to an end. 
The following year, Gladstone would skirt around the objections of the House of Lords to this abolition of the tax on paper by including the tax and other items in a finance bill, which the Lords were obliged to accept. Gladstone had thus opened the way for a freer printing press. But he didn't stop there. Over the following years, he steadily reduced the tax burden on the folks below £100, from £9 to £4 by 1865. Gladstone was enthusiastically pacifist in any interventions he was able to take part in with British foreign policy, because he knew that without any foreign wars to distract them from, British coffers would enable proper financial reform, and this would enable the Liberal government to have at their disposal a greater amount of pennies in the jar at the end of the day. Gladstone had, after all, inherited a ledger which was £5 million in debt, and he simultaneously worked, as he had before, to get this figure down without borrowing. It was because of his many statements on the need to reduce taxation, and his insistence that the government tended to waste money, that Gladstone came to be more and more favoured by the working classes. Paper he had enabled them to buy was now even more affordable, thanks to the lower tax rate. Thus, periodicals and pamphlets of varying polish and appeal were created, and most of their writers hailed Gladstone's policies and the man himself as the champion of the people. This explosion in popularity and growth of popular politics only grew once Gladstone took to the streets. Gladstone visited Northumberland in 1862 to capitalise on his growing popularity, shore up the government, and deliver a set number of speeches. Newspaper editor and secular reformer George Holyoke recorded in 1865 of Gladstone's visit. When Gladstone visited the North, you well remember when word passed from the newspaper to the workmen that it circulated through mines and mills, factories and workshops, and they came out to greet the only British minister who ever gave the English people a right, because it was just that they should have it. And he went down the Tyne. All the country heard how twenty miles of banks were lined with people who came to greet him. Men stood in the blaze of chimneys, the roofs of factories were crowded, colliers came up from the mines, women held up their children on the banks that it might be said, in after life, they had seen the Chancellor of the people go by. The river was covered like the land. Every man who could ply an oar pulled up to give Mr Gladstone a cheer. When Lord Palmerston went to Bradford, the streets were still, and working men imposed silence upon themselves. When Mr. Gladstone appeared on the Tyne, he heard loud cheer no other English minister ever heard. The people were grateful to him, and rough pitmen, who never approached a public man before, pressed round his carriage by thousands, and thousands of arms were stretched out at once, to shake hands with Mr. Gladstone as one of themselves. Gladstone may have anticipated that his taxation policies would win him support, but he likely never imagined that the people would adopt him as they did. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. From here onwards, more than ever, he was the People's William. It was also at this point that Gladstone's views on electoral reform began to change. When he had been returned to power in 1859... Lord Palmerston was wary of further increasing the eligibility of the vote to all citizens, especially the working class. The fear that the landed gentry would lose their pride of place in British society, reflected in the opposition to the removal of tax on paper that we saw before, was one held by Palmerston as well as Gladstone, but to a lesser extent. Palmerston and his Whig ally turned Liberal Party colleague John Russell may have been reformers, but they were also politicians and statesmen of the old school. They owned large estates and possessed vested interest in seeing their economic superiority continue. They were happy to reduce the barriers to enfranchisement, but only to a degree. Gladstone, after seeing the public's enthusiasm and hearing their pleas to be allowed to have a voice in the nation, could no longer see himself as part of this stagnating camp once his campaign of speeches came to an end. From this point onwards, he was the People's William in reform of the electorate as well as economics and his whole view of the vote itself became enmeshed with his own beliefs about liberal teachings and principles, which had originally declared for equality and justice for all. As though awoken from a dream, Gladstone became perhaps liberalism's most fervent supporter of true electoral reform to all men, and even women, depending on what day you asked him. Of course, it scared the living daylights out of the party stalwarts like Palmerston and Russell, but both had to accept that Britain had to keep one eye on home affairs, and one eye on foreign policy, to the extent that no eye would ever be able to fully keep pace with what Gladstone did. In mid-April 1861, the United States of America began its descent into catastrophe as the Civil War, or the War Between the States, or the Northern War of Aggrandizement, or the war in which the South was innocent of all crimes, or the war in which the North was only doing what was best for unity in the end, okay, broke out. I'm covering all my bases if you don't mind, so please don't tell me I called it by the wrong name. Again. Where this interests us here is how Palmerston's government reacted to its course. Initially it seemed as though there was a relatively clear split in Britain. The landed gentry and elite wealthy families favoured the South, while the magnates, middle classes and liberal segments of opinion generally favoured the North. Regardless of whom he favoured, the South, incidentally, until after 1863, Palmerston as well as Gladstone and John Russell argued that peace was essential between Britain and both sides of America because of their concerns for Europe, as Napoleon III huffed and puffed in France and the later actions of Bismarck scared and transformed. It wasn't until the Trent Affair in November 1861 that relations really began to heat up. Therein, a Union admiral rushed a British vessel that was carrying Confederate diplomats to Europe. 
He was successful in his mission, and the Confederates were captured and sent back to Washington. But by doing so, this Union admiral had seriously disrespected the sovereignty of British shipping. And once it was learned of and plastered all across the newspapers and ingrained on the minds of British statesmen, the situation quickly escalated. It was the closest that Americans and Brits had come to war in over a generation, and British honour compelled some in Lord Palmerston's cabinet to urge him to declare war, or at least show a strong hand. He elected to do the latter. 12,000 men were sent to Canada, and during the last two months of 1861, the Royal Navy was put on a war footing. Concerned pleas from the British ambassador in America and the Union representative in London eventually eased the tensions, though. And anyway, after 1863, Palmerston had bigger fish to fry. For a time, when Palmerston and his cabinet perceived that the war was entering a stalemate phase, it was feared in Washington that London would urge mediation in order to re-establish the order that peace would bring. To do this, though, would mean recognising the legitimacy of the Confederacy, something which the Union refused to do, and something they had made pains to avoid doing over the previous years by presenting the Confederates to foreign governments as ungrateful rebels who deserved no official representation in their capitals. Recognising the Confederates meant sending diplomats, allowing them to exist in a truce agreement, officialising trade and other such niceties, and it would be construed by the Union as a seriously unfriendly act. So Abraham Lincoln was said to have instructed his ambassador in London to make plain, anyway. In any case, the likelihood of war is best left to an alternative reality podcast of some kind, hint hint, since the circumstances of the time made the real possibility for war between the two nations virtually impossible, unless subsequent insults occurred. Lincoln was certainly careful to ensure that such an event as the Trent Affair did not happen again, but considering how reliant Britain was on the Union for grains, and how reliant the Union was on Britain for its manufacturing, and how accustomed both had become to a good trading relationship, war would have seriously jeopardised all of this. Because Palmerston was never given good reason after the Trent Affair, he quickly turned his attention away from America and towards Europe, where a certain troublesome prince awaited him. I shall soon be compelled to undertake the leadership of the Prussian government. My first care will be, with or without the help of Parliament, to reorganise the army. The king has rightly set himself this task. He cannot, however, carry it through with his present councillors. When the army has been brought to such a state as to command respect, then I will take the first opportunity to declare war with Austria, burst asunder the German Confederation, bring the middle and smaller states into subjection, and give Germany a national union under the leadership of Prussia. I have come here to tell this to the Queen's ministers. According to the Saxon ambassador to Britain, these were the words of Otto Edward Leopold, in a conversation he had had with Benjamin Disraeli in early 1862. Months before Leopold, who we all know better as simply Otto von Bismarck, became the Minister-President of Prussia, a title which combined the roles of Chancellor and Foreign Minister into one all-encompassing job. Supposedly, according to the aforementioned ambassador, Bismarck had made these remarks to impress and shock Disraeli, he didn't necessarily mean to attack Austria within months. A goal that almost certainly succeeded, since Disraeli was said to have remarked at this dinner in London's Russian embassy, Take care of the man, he means what he says. 
As well as he may have regarded Bismarck in early 1862, neither Disraeli nor Gladstone could have predicted in a million years the impact that this one Prussian Junker would have had, not just on German and European history, but also their individual political careers and experiences. For, just as Disraeli and Gladstone were beginning to come out of their shells to lead the parties they had for so long been at the forefront of, Bismarck was crafting a political future of his own, a future which determined that the next few decades were to be the years of political heavyweights and legendary personalities. By the end of September 1862, long after he had made the remarks to Disraeli in private, Bismarck was thrust to the head of Prussian statecraft by actually becoming the minister-president of that German state, just as he said he would. Bismarck's assumption of power sent significant shockwaves throughout Europe. Bismarck was rightly feared to be an instrument of determined conservatism, who regarded the growing Prussian liberal and democratic directions as threats to the stability and security of his country. Years of shaky previous experiences through the 1848 revolutions, where the Prussian king had felt forced to turn down the offer of German emperor of the German confederation out of fear from Austria and Russia, to the present day, when Bismarck served as Prussia's key representative in the German confederation and as a frequent foil to Austria, had taught Bismarck multiple lessons. It had imbued him with a uniquely ingenious diplomacy, which came to be known as Bismarckian, while it had also taught him to fear, loathe and control any suggestions at home that domestic change would bring. Whether Disraeli saw fit to tell others what Bismarck had told him is unknown, but the latter certainly wasted little time unleashing his first war upon the world, and plunging Lord Palmerston's liberal cabinet into a crisis in the process. When Prussian soldiers crossed over the Danish border in February 1864, they did so as the end result of months of diplomatic legwork on the part of Bismarck. Supporting the German-speaking majorities in the Danish dependencies of Schleswig and Holstein, Bismarck was able to cry foul when these two principalities were annexed into Denmark in late 1863, and utilised the ire of Austria to his advantage at the same time. Since both Schleswig and Holstein were German duchies and thus present in the German Confederation, Austria felt it had been slighted once the new Danish king, Christian IX, straight up annexed the two of them. With combined forces of 60,000 men to face Denmark's 35,000, both provinces were quickly overrun, and the resulting Treaty of Vienna in August 1864 was a thoroughly depressing experience for Denmark, who saw its territory virtually sawn in half, and its subjects decreased from 2.5 million to 1.6 million. There was no cheerfully defined reception for the Danes that returned to Copenhagen that October either, and Scandinavianism as an ideology was officially dead, since the act of unifying all the North's contingent parts that Scandinavianism decreed would now result almost certainly with war against an empowered Prussia. Bismarck had made sure to leave some grey areas with respect to the Austro-Prussian control of Schleswig and Holstein, so that in 18 months' time he would have cause to attack Austria, just as he said he would, to Benjamin Disraeli. The news of the sudden Prussian aggrandizement hit Lord Palmerston's government hard. Immense pressure was put on his ministry to act, and letters were pinged to Napoleon III by liberal notable John Russell, in the hopes that an Anglo-French countermarch could be organised against the Austro-Prussians and the Danes would be saved. 
In July 1863, Palmerston made a speech to the House of Commons in light of the ongoing concerns evoked by Prussia and Austria over Schleswig and Holstein and their status within Denmark. Palmerston said, We are convinced, I am convinced at least, that if any violent attempt were made to overthrow those rights and interfere with that independence, those who made the attempt would find in the end result it would not be Denmark alone with which they would have to contend. Despite this, though, Palmerston did not expect or did not wish to have to actually use force in the end game, and perhaps he had hoped that the threat or promise of force would be enough. Over the course of spring 1864, the British cabinet was evidently divided. Palmerston was wholly opposed to intervention unless the independence of Denmark was in danger, though he did refuse to allow the Austrian navy to travel up the channel to attack the Danes, he also refused to allow the Royal Navy to move towards Copenhagen to protect it. When faced with conservative opposition in the House of Lords and Commons, he endured numerous votes of confidence in his leadership. The worst of these came in June 1864 when Jonathan Peel, the fifth son of Sir Robert Peel and a conservative backbencher of great oratorical skill, lambasted Palmerston's reliance on words rather than deeds to prevent the calamity of the Danes. John Peel said, It has come to this, that the words of the Prime Minister of England, uttered in the Parliament of England, are to be regarded as mere idle menaces to be laughed at and despised by foreign powers. To retort, that evening Palmerston replied, I say that England stands as high as she ever did, and those who say she has fallen in the estimation of the world are not the men to whom the honour and dignity of England should be confided. Yet his back was at least somewhat against the wall in terms of public opinion. As the war went on and the temporary truce negotiated to give the Danes time to accept the terms, which they did not, expired, Palmerston again came under pressure to defend his policy in Denmark. He was determined that Britain should not entangle herself unless Denmark's very sovereignty were at stake, something of a cop-out from his high-minded pedestal of before, but certainly more realistic. British statesmen were coming to understand what the premiership of Bismarck meant to Europe, and only because cabinet was so divided and Palmerston so against the move, was war averted. Palmerston made a speech to his constituents in Tiverton in August, just as the final peace was being hammered out between the Danes and Austro-Prussians. He said, I am sure every Englishman who has a heart in his breast and a feeling of justice in his mind sympathises with those unfortunate Danes, and wishes that this country could have been able to draw the sword successfully in their defence. But I am satisfied that those who reflect on the season of the year when the war broke out, on the means which this country could have applied for deciding in one sense that issue, I am satisfied that those who make these reflections will think we acted wisely in not embarking upon that dispute. To have sent a fleet in midwinter to the Baltic, every sailor will tell you was an impossibility, but if it could have gone, it would have been attended by no effectual result. Ships sailing on the sea cannot stop armies on land, and to have attempted to stop the progress of an army by sending a fleet to the Baltic would have been attempting to do that which is not possible to accomplish. If England could have sent an army, and although we all know how admirable that army is on the peace establishment, we must acknowledge that we have no means of sending out a force at all equal to cope with the 300 or 400,000 men to which the 30 or 40 million of Germany could have pitted against us, and that such an attempt would only 
insured a disgraceful discomfiture, not to the army indeed, but to the government, which sent out an inferior force and expected it to cope successfully with a force so vastly superior. We did not think that the Danish cause would be considered so sufficiently British, and as sufficiently bearing on the interests and the security and the honour of England, as to make it justifiable to ask the country to make those excursions, which such a war would render necessary. Note the references to Britain's honour at the end of the speech, as well as the assertion that interference had not come because neither British interests or security were perceived to be at stake. Benjamin Disraeli, as Lord Derby remained the leader of the Conservatives, continued, as the leader of the party in the House of Commons, to pepper the beleaguered Liberals during this crisis with numerous votes of no confidence, but Palmerston defeated every one of them, as we saw. Despite rumours about Lord Palmerston's health, he was almost 81 years old, his popularity and health remained strong. In the July 1865 general election, the situation got still worse for Disraeli and co. when the Liberals increased their lead over the Conservatives. In an immensely depressing conversation with the leader of the party, Lord Derby, Disraeli lamented that the Conservatives needed to implement reforms of their own to remain relevant and not consistently a step behind the Liberals while Lord Derby replied to this by insisting that neither he nor Disraeli would ever hold office again. He would prove wrong in this prediction, much to the latter's relief, indeed only a few months after settling into office once again. The elderly Palmerston died after a short illness in October 1865, two days shy of his 81st birthday. It was a sharp shock to the Liberal Party, who had lost perhaps their greatest figure and eldest representative of the older era. But former Whig leader John Russell remained, and he took leadership of the party, while Gladstone continued to wait eagerly in the wings. His time, though he could not have known for certain when he looked at the comparatively younger John Russell, would soon come. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.